Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Good afternoon, Blockhead listeners. I told you I'd be back before the week was out, and here we are. Second part of our two-part interview with Pat Sandy, picking up pretty much where we left off, just as always. This is an interesting episode. Both of us really get into talking about Charles Schultz and and the work of Charles Schultz and Peanuts, of course, classic comic strips in general, but the work of Schultz runs through everything we talk about here, as we, and we weave in and out quite a few times. So we'll start to talk about uh, Peanuts and, and Charles Schultz's work, and uh, Charles Schultz will guide us into other territory, and then we'll come out and come back to it again. Uh, and that seems to be the way with great works of art, right? You, When you are meditating on them, and in this particular form where it seems like almost everything that's come after Peanuts is, in somehow, is somehow indebted to it, and all roads lead back to Peanuts. It's almost in the same way that all, all roads lead back to the blues. Not much more to add to that. I think it's an interesting discussion. Again, it's two cartoonists talking shop. There's a lot of stuff in here about uh, how to put together a comic strip and um, how we put together comic strips. For those of you who are cartoonists, I think you'll find it interesting. For those of you who aren't, uh, well, I hope it doesn't bore the heck out of you. Uh, maybe, it, as, as I said early on, one of the first episodes, <laughs> this is an opportunity for opening up the hood and uh, joining a couple of mechanics. Oh, God. you know you get a metaphor in your head or an analogy rather and you know you just drum it to death but anyway okay before i do that pat sandy and myself in conversation and in getting back to more the macro subject the the issue of satire that's why i was so sad to see mad yeah not going away necessarily i mean i've seen all the post-op discussions about it but man, I got to tell you, I grew up with the the paperbacks and the me too, Al Jaffe and, and the early guys, Will Elder and all that kind of stuff. And uh, man, that's that magazine had its finger on the pulse. It really did for for many decades. You know? It sure did. And for for any twelve or thirteen year old at the time, it was oh, yeah. you know it was this illicit you know world that you entered into where you know, the humor uh, in the movie parodies and whatnot was like, again, you're being clued into a world that was, as I said, slightly illicit in the sense that it, it felt like stuff that your parents weren't going to tell you. You know, this is the stuff your parents know, but they're not going to tell you. Well, you know what I traded up from Mad? I traded, now by the time I was about 13, 14, I traded up, I'm being facetious here, but the magazine that caught my eye after Mad, mm-hmm. National Lampoon. Oh, okay, me too. <laughs> <laughs> that's you, you stepped that was this that was the ladder you know you climbed the ladder from mad to national oh, lampoon and there that, were comics in know, national lampoon too my god there was uh, yeah jeff jones charlie rodriguez and these guys yeah. 
Oh my God. Yeah, you know, uh, Von Bodet. Yeah, and Gay uh, and Wilson and all these yeah, guys. Yeah, Gay and Wilson and uh, Neil Adams used to draw for right. Netflix. Yes, he did. And then you had the Fumettis, which were the photo sections, and mm-hmm. that to elaborate. If you all that stuff. Yeah. But it was I did a, stuff. I did a parody in high school. Uh, it almost got me kicked out of school. It was, right. a, it was actually called by my high school's name, you know, Union Endicott Lampoon. And, uh, you know, when I see people from high school now, that's how they remember me for better. Right. For well, I, the first issue of Lampoon I ever ran into, the first issue was a, the issue called Modern Times. It's the summer of 1973, I believe. Okay. And the cover was drawn by, was painted by Bruce McCall. Oh, wow. Known for these big wonky DeSoto car planes that he always would paint and stuff. He had this sort of pseudo retro thing. And I got to tell you, when I when I first read that, we were on a vacation and I was on an uh, at an airport reading this on a plane. And I, I, I laughed so hard I was in tears. It was one of the <laughs> magazines I ever read. And from that point on now, National Lampoon had a rather, you know, ignominious fade out after Animal House and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just kind of what happened to it. I don't know. I think it's a brand. I think it's still like National Lampoon TM, I think, is some type of brand, but I don't think it's. And they did the movies, but then the movies kind of petered out, too. Right. It's really unfortunate because, you know, and they also National Lampoon. I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware, but I mean, they also a lot of their writers work for Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Saturday Night Live. They did the National Lampoon records. John Belushi and all these guys are all. Yeah, those are great records. Oh, my God. They're funny. Yeah. Really? But yeah, but, that's, and it informs you, it informs yeah. your sense of humor as you grow Well, up. and that led me, and we talked about this, Ryan and I did too, uh, it led me to Monty Python, which I still, oh. you know, through Terry Gilliam and uh, whomever, I still hold on to, to Monty Python. I love Python. I also, I don't know why, I thought they were sort of America's version, but I was kind of into fire signs theater as well. Yeah. Phil I, heard, I never got into them as much, but they, they were very dry. They Monty yeah. Python was ridiculous, you know. Yeah, ridiculous, you know. It was a little Dick Cavett, like you had this cerebral type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked SCTV too. That was fun. Oh yeah, yeah, but John Candy. Now, now we were being obscure. <laughs> I know. I know. Now we're going down the, the rabbit hole. The but, rabbit hole. And I but, but I digress. Yeah, we. <laughs> well, we have a, we shared. You know, it, we have shared a popular culture experience. We have traveled the, the paths together. Many many miles, Jeff. Many yes. many miles. So let's 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 circle back to Charles Schultz for a little bit because yeah. I I've, I in the last couple of podcasts I've stayed away from Charles Schultz and and I haven't I've talked about other things and um, I do want to go back to it because like you were talking about character driven humor and in a lot of ways. You know, thinking back to the history of, of comics and humor in comics, many ways, Peanuts set the template for the, oh. eva- the development of the gag strip as we know it, you know, today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, well, again, and, it came when it came out, it really was. I mean, when you think about it, as old looking mm-hmm. as 1950 Peanuts looks like at the time, it was from Mars. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. It was vastly different than anything else that was out there. One of my first guests on the show said, you know, Brad Perry said, you know, imagine the newspaper page back in those days in 1950. If you can find a copy of a newspaper page from the the era in which Peanuts first debuted and you get the comics page, which was boy, oh boy, was it a treasure trove of stuff. Sure. Jam packed. But Peanuts, this little simplistic, you know, approach to illustration among all of these elaborately illustrated cartoons with a next, lot of black and white. You know, uh, next to Dick Tracy and Pogo and all that type of stuff. Stan Drake and cross hatching and all kinds of stuff. And then you have this simple little thing over in the corner that can is there because it can basically be a space saver. 
you know? Right, right. It did look like it was from Mars, you know? It looked oh, like it was from someplace time, else. Sure. But I think what's astounding, if you look at Peanuts, and Brad, I think, would agree with this, too, is that, you know, you look at the the growth of Schultz's work from 1950 to, say, 1960, and it's, it, it truly is jaw-dropping. I mean, yeah. the man's work so it's almost it's really it's inspirational and i think that kind of should underscore why you even have this show i mean it's sort of the cornerstone because his work was so jaw-droppingly beautiful yeah yeah and beautifully written and and so perfect in its execution and i i, I gush but i i gush for a very good reason mm-hmm. i mean some of the stuff was amazing and he had hit his stride by 1960 he really oh, oh yeah God. absolutely i i tend to think the strip really coalesced in 56 or 57 yeah, 57 yeah, yeah. certainly had but you know you're absolutely right by uh-huh. 1960 the peanuts classic period was there and uh-huh. and it was a thing of beauty but it took it's really interesting it took that long for it to to coalesce you know it took six or seven years to coalesce mm-hmm. and i was thinking about this when you you talked about trudeau and his storylines and i was thinking how you can't you don't really have the opportunity to do what those guys did anymore the strip has to be almost fully formed right from the beginning first of all because it's going to come and go very quickly and it's going to oh, be sure. seen very quickly but um, you know, that investment that it takes to, you, you have to, if you're going to a syndicate and you're going to bring on Charles Schultz, you know, you have to invest in Charles Schultz in order for him to do oh, that to, is very true. You know, that is and, very true. Yeah. Yeah. And they definitely did, you know, I mean, well, some, I think a lot of, well, peanuts was a good example. If I'm not mistaken, I'm sure I'm wrong on this, but I'm sure when it debuted, I think it was only in like 15 newspapers or something like that. But in so, those days, even up until like, I would say the early nineties, I think there was there was the opportunity to let a strip get out there and kind of organically build an audience. Nowadays, I don't think they have that kind of long leash, you know. Well, I don't think so either. And I think actually it goes back to this idea that in some ways you have to have proven yourself on Instagram. Uh, how many followers do you have? How many? Right. Uh, follow you on Facebook. How many friends do you have? I listen to some podcasts and and uh, hear this from uh, young actors and actresses that a lot of times when they go to auditions, they're being asked exactly that: How many followers do you have on Instagram? Right. And because they want that immediate connection to an audience, you know, particularly if it's an independent film and they're looking for notoriety, it's cheap publicity. And as you were saying before, so much relies on the cartoonists themselves now in terms of building the brand and building right. the monetary, you know, uh, remuneration remuneration for what they're doing. They want to make sure that there's an audience for this, you know? And so a lot of times I think that's where go, I'll be honest with you. I think go comics, not to, you know, assume anything, but I think the model, the model of go comics, I think serves that type of gestational, if that's a word, gestational function for that syndicate and that they strips can get on there Mm -hmm. and holistically kind of grow their world a little bit. And they, they get, you know, the syndicate of people there get a chance to see what they can do. I think Will Henry is a perfect example of that. Yeah. He was on there for two, three years and he was growing. It was very, grew beautifully. It's one of the most stunning strips I've seen in years, you know. It's a beautiful strip. Yeah, beautiful strip. Will's a really nice guy, but, you know, in the conversation I had with Will, they were sort of courting him right from the beginning. Sure. Even before the strip had gotten up on online. I'm not even sure what he submitted to them initially, but... He was somebody that I think they immediately took a liking to and, uh, um, you know, identified as somebody they were going to work with. But in, and I mean, in terms of like the other possibilities like books and syndications, oh, of course, yeah. at the I'm same sure. time, you have to think about, um, 
you know, cul-de-sac and Richard Thompson, you oh, know, Richard, unfortunately, Richard Thompson was ill. He was ending the strip. They were looking for something to replace that. And I think both graphically and in, in not necessarily in tone, but, you know, uh, certainly Will Strip fits that. Walls the Brave fits that, you know, agenda. <laughs> Yeah, oh, definitely it does. And I think that there's some, uh, you know, a lot of the, what I would say that are a lot of the panels and strips that are demographically aiming for a younger audience, I think, get get their footing on there, but also are very viable on their own outside of it. I think things like uh, Saturday morning breakfast cereal is one of them. And mm-hmm. you know, some of these strips, they're, they're a different, it's a different style of humor and it's uh, very new and contemporary. Go Comics is very different in, in its um, sensibility than, say, it's a little more edgy, say, than you'll find on King Features. Um, oh. King F- Comics Kingdom website, which is probably, in terms of comic strips, the only competitor of any real size, you know. I mean, there are obviously there's Webtoons and there's t- uh, Tapas or what used to be Tapastic. They're out there, but in terms of a mass audience, you know, uh, both of these are the old venerable institutions. So they compete with each other. You get that sense of edginess in, in Go Comics that uh, and, and a willingness to experiment. That said... It serves a function, yeah. Yeah, that said, when they put you out there, they sort of leave you to your own devices, and you either sink or swim on your own. And whereas... What it boils down, yeah. yeah. What I was going to say what's different is that, say, in 1990, when you were... Very few people were picked up by the syndicate, you know, un- very unlike what Go Comics is today. In those days, ver- still very few people were picked up, but then they got a development contract. And maybe it didn't pay a lot of money, but, you know, Mutz was developed uh, over a, a period of several years. And, right. you know, I don't know that he was making a salary worthy amount of money, but they had invested some funds in him before it hit the newspapers. And right. obviously it was a good decision. You right. know, smart decision. But, you know, Go Comics may serve as a launching pad, although I, I've only seen that a couple of times, you know. It really is. I think, well, because, again, it boils down to, I think, that there are only so many spots in a in a newspaper to be picked up on. You know what I mean? I Absolutely. think, that, you know, Go Comics currently has, I don't, I haven't really sat and counted it, but I'd say it's at least 500 plus strips. Yeah, at least, I think it's uh, just over 500. Right. And so you have that many strips, and I would bet, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to put myself in that mix at all, but I would bet there's a good 50 of them on there that could probably be syndicated. But where? You know, what I mean, yeah. the business model is is indeed changed. So I think that the stakes are pretty high when the syndicate puts their money where their mouth is, so to speak. They have to, they can't just be blowing money just because they happen to like something. You know, they have to make sure that it's also got viability in the marketplace. That's why I go back to Norm. You know, I laugh about Norm as a character because. You know, years ago, I mentioned I pushed the strip in 2001, and I had one syndicate guy say, man, I think this is funny, but, man, he is an unlikable character. You need to come up with more likable characters. Yeah, but there are a lot of unlikable characters oh, in the there are, for sure. You know? And, I, and you know, I, yeah, I understand that, yeah. But, I mean, I like that type of humor, you know. Yeah, but I also think it's viable. I mean, you know, when you pick up the newspaper and there's still characters in there, and this this goes back to – I don't know, you know, uh, I mean, first of all, we go back to Schultz and like Lucy is not a likable character. Oh, not at all. No, she's she actually beats people up, you know, and and the only, you know, and actually I think that the, and even Charlie Brown, you know, uh, I mean, we love Charlie Brown, but is yeah. Charlie Brown a likable guy? I mean, we kind of recognize some of our failings and our vulnerability in Charlie Brown, right. but he's really a likable guy. He um, yeah. 
particularly in the early days, you know, yeah. in the first couple of strips, he was just a little smart ass, you know? Right, right, right. And uh, so he develops into who he becomes. And Lucy, you know, was the fuss budget. What was funny was the fact, first of all, the two of them together was funny. But, um, you know, Lucy's very um, antagonistic kind of a attitude or presence, really <laughs> angry, was funny, you know? And so I think it comes down to, Sometimes I, I, because I think Norm would be next door neighbors to me seems like a no brainer. Seems like I think that would sell in newspapers and I think people would respond to it. I, I think it, yeah. Well, I, and again, you know, me, like anybody who's tried to get into it stuff, I, I really, really try very, very hard to kind of put those, the blinders on, on those issues because it's, it's a situation obviously that, you know, one is in no control of. So what you do in the meantime is you, you just simply do your best stuff. And, or what you think yeah. might be your best stuff yeah. and try to get it out there as consistently as you can. And, you know, I mean, some days, some days it's a grind as you well know, you know, yeah, sure. some days you don't feel like doing it and all that, but if you're committed to this, to the story, so to speak, you just keep doing it. And again, I think another thing about, uh, about web as opposed to newspapers is that instantaneous um, reaction from mm -hmm. people can be unsettling. I had, when the strip first debuted, I remember there was, um, man, I, I think it was, it was St. Patty's day. That's when it was, it was a St. Patty's strip. And, uh, I forget what the gag was, but Norm went and got hammered somewhere. And I had somebody weigh in and they said, that's it. I'm out. And really? Yeah. They said, that's it. I'm out. I said, they said, Norm needs help. He needs to go to AA and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, because Norm to me is like like wood pulp and ink, is he? Yeah, you know I mean? he's not a real person. He's but not a real person. Yeah. No, but we do know a lot of Norms and stuff, and so I, you know, I've had it's a little bit lowbrow that he's that he gets hammered, but I think he also represents to me this kind of guileless honey badger thing. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And he and I think there's a there's an aspirational tone. I hate to even use that phrase, but there's an aspirational tone to being honey badger if you know what i mean because you don't uh, care what people think yeah know? yeah and and well you know I, I have to say i think this is one of the problems we have with the way media is perceived and pop culture is perceived you know norm is not an, uh, uh, an example you want anyone to follow and you don't you know yeah. and you don't draw norm right he's he's a parody and he's yeah. a satire he's a satirical character and and you know he's somebody who's overtly bro he's broad in his humor and we're meant to laugh at him look i come from uh you know a whole long history of of alcoholism in my my family okay yeah. alcoholic abuse and and there were there were situations where uh, alcohol was abused greatly and it impacted uh, oh, people shit. loved all that kind of stuff i'm familiar with that stuff listen i can still laugh at beer jokes i can still laugh at a guy like norm who i think is hilarious because i know he's not real and i know that you're not setting him out as to be an no. example of a particular kind of middle lower middle class or working class person this is just the guy you hate to have living next door to you that's really and again i go back to that central conceit it's the you know it's that guy i mean i even go to vera the mother because I love you know her. she smokes <laughs> she now smokes. i know we don't know a lot of people that smoke nowadays but she smokes and she's constantly got a cigarette. And I've had people kind of bust me about that. Like what's with the cigarettes all the time. They're killing those cats and all that. And you know, she has a lot of cats. So I get that. Yeah. But, but these are people who don't know any better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Vera, Vera is, um, 
she's she's pretty goofy, man. And I and I'm having fun doing. In fact, I have to avoid story arcs sometimes because they come too easily with the Vera character. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I love Vera, and I I think I mentioned this to you before. I love the cats. I love the way you draw those cats, man. <laughs> they, they, I just, they, well, they're similar to what I did in greeting cards. I mean, I used to. I can't draw cats to save my life, but I man, mean, you I draw the best cats. <laughs> not being able to draw something makes it the best. Yeah. I'll do like this little bowling ball and a little body and stuff, and I actually abbreviate. Like they, you know, it's just the tail and the body or whatever. But you know, the, I've had I've had other people work me. There was a sequence last year where Vera went on a cruise, and uh, <laughs> the kids had to watch all the cats. And I kept vacillating on the number of cats because, like my mom, who was a lovely woman, she wasn't anything like Vera. I always have to qualify that. But she had a lot of cats. She had like twelve cats roaming around the house and under the porch and all this. And Vera, last I heard, last I'd written, had like forty <laughs> cats. Right. Forty some cats. Forty some cats. Last you heard. Yeah. Last last you heard. Heard. Well, I had a joke last year where she was telling some guy she uses a spreadsheet or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many cats she has. And I like that uh, freedom, you know. Yeah. yeah. And the cat. And sometimes I'll feature some of the cats. But again, you, you get into a little bit of loosey goosey territory because what's the most popular animal in comic strips? Cats. So I try I try very hard to not anthropomorphize these cats because mm-hmm. that's not what I'm doing. You know I mean? It's more about Vera and I, and not to diminish the cats mm-hmm. or to demean our feline friends, but you know, that territory of the, of cats talking and all that is very well covered out there. Oh yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So I've, as, as a creative, I certainly don't want to get into territory that doesn't feel uh, yeah. congruent with the strip. I hope that yeah, makes but sense. It's- yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It does. And the world feels very, you know, it all fits together, fits together right. really, really right. well as, as, as it, as it is thinking about Vera is, is a hilarious character, but we're writing fiction, you know, and yes. we are creating fictional worlds and these people are not meant to be, you know, Lucy does not represent all women, you know, Lucy does not represent a particular kind of woman. Lucy is Lucy, you know, yeah. Lucy is a di- is a distinct individual. Now she may be based on an individual. Who knows? Apparently, the story is that Lucy was based on Schultz initially. Anyway, Schultz's uh, daughter, who who yeah. early on was kind of a you know she she cried maybe she fussed a bit and and the nickname was she was a fuss budget. Okay, so Lucy became a fuss budget, yeah. but Lucy became her own character and her own person. But she's not representative of all women, and Charlie Brown is not representative of all men, and and Norm is certainly not representative of all men and and you get this like idea that somehow or another these characters are meant to be you know tropes they're meant to be oh uh, there's no question of that yeah i would absolutely agree with that there and tropes you know trope trope in it as a term implies a negative connotation and it really mm-hmm. trope is a structure yeah and it really is in a way a structure and i think that you know there's there's a you know the you know, the phrase a river runs through it. You can almost say a trope runs through pop culture because just about everything is influenced by something else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's where you get your tropes and all that. But I mean, it's, but there's nothing inherently wrong with them. So there's probably correlations to Lucy and strips that came out, say in the, in the eighties or something like that. It's a constant running thing. Well, you know, um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, it goes into this expectation we have of comics, you know, being and, and all of our pop culture really being fully formed right out of the gate and oh, not 
time to develop, you know, because we're not thinking of it as an art form. We're just thinking of it as entertainment. And when you think about, you know, like when Schultz's characters started, you know, they weren't anything really more than just generic little kids, generic little kids that were in lots of strips. And, and there was a hint here and there in the early days of Schultz's developing humor and his sensibility and all of that. But that's looking backward that we see that now at the time no people reading peanuts it's just like well these were just like generic little kids but you had one day at a time yeah at each day to kind of assimilate it and you're right if you do the you know you look in the rear view mirror and it's very easy to see the explosion of the (laughs) for example in peanuts i think my favorite aspect of peanuts is again the surreal nature of it that suddenly Suddenly, while the, these kids weren't really, they were still doing like kid type stuff, but suddenly the, you know, Snoopy comes in. Yeah. And you get this, uh, the, the Red Baron series and all that. It's interesting, you know, what's uh, Saturday? It's the 50th anniversary, you know, the uh, moon landing. Yes, it is. Yeah. I remember very well, you know, the Peanuts series. It, I don't know, the ones with Snoopy on the doghouse and stuff. Yeah. Pretty funny gags there. First oh, Beagle on the Moon, that type of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's just so, so surreal that a guy that as generally conservative as Schultz really was, uh-huh. was able to take that strip into some very trippy territory, still yeah. somehow managed to bring it back to everyday things like baseball and stuff. It was amazing. And, and, you know, and to human foibles and the concerns of every person. And I I think that's one of the wonderful, that's one of the miracles of the strip really is that the strip was able to open the door to this fantasy world. And I think part of, you know, why it works is that Snoopy lives in this fantasy world. Now the kids live in a kind of fantasy world too, without adults. There are no adults around, right? Although their presence is implied, they're not really there. So there's that kind of fantasy too, to it. Schultz is, it's like he built it brick by brick and very strong brick by brick so that it enabled, you know, the Snoopy's flights of fancy to to feel completely congruous is the word I think you used earlier. Oh, yeah. Well, one of my favorites, I just posted this recently, actually, um, from the Schultz Museum. I'm assuming you've been out to the Schultz Museum. Right? No, I never oh, have. Uh, I, I've not <laughs> go there. out there, man. I know. Mecca, you know. But there was, um, they, you know, they post a daily strip of peanuts and all that. And they're, they're on the moon landing stuff this week and everything. Yes. And um but they posted one last week of Snoopy with the whole trope about uh, him as an author. You know, it was a dark and stormy night thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they they printed one of them. I think it was the first time that Snoopy rolled out a, a typewriter on his doghouse. I saw and that. Schultz, yeah, Schultz said, you know, he said he could. I forget exactly how he said it, but he was talking about the fact that you know that how how would a typewriter sit on a doghouse <laughs> and everything. And at three quarter angle or whatever. And he says, I made, he says, I made it work because I said it worked. I think that's yeah. incredible. I think that speaks for all of us, really. I mean, I could, the same thing goes for any strip you want to talk about, ours or whoever. The strip, generically speaking, works because its creator is, is making it work. Yeah. You, you buy into that. And if you but, don't, you should probably go maybe read something else, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you, and Snoopy, I mean, it's interesting that period when Snoopy first starts sleeping on the doghouse, the doghouse is in three-quarter view. Right. And as time went on, that became yep. a profile view. And the profile view, it's funny, once you buy into that, and, and really we were never really, you know, um, asked to buy into it. It was just there and we accepted it. You, you accept- know? 
Yeah. You accepted and it. I'll tell you something. And, I could, and my strip isn't, is not as surreal as that, but I mean, I've gotten into some, so, oh God, I'll get people. I had one strip last year that was, uh, it was at Deke's bar and it, I, it was just a gag. I thought the phrase was funny. Draft wassel. That's all it was. It was just a riff off of Christmas. Uh huh. Draft wassel. And then I had, uh, and it wasn't the first time I've seen something like this where somebody, and I think it was over at Twitter said, some person was questioning the logistics of creating draft wassel. Like you can't do that, Pat, you know? And I'm thinking this the same person has no problem with talking stuffed tigers, uh, zebras that talk and little beagles that fly, you know, dog houses up to right. the moon. Yeah. Wondering about draft wassel. So I wonder where the literalism comes from. Yeah. I know. I know. Where does that problem go? You know, it's, yeah. I, yeah, it's a good question. It's a, it, but, you know, and that's always a bummer to me, too, because, yeah, you know, you put the you put the words together and it makes the sound and there it is. It exists. You know, yes. if you can draw it, it can be in a comic. Well, that's the, because I thought, that's what I loved about Schultz comment. He he said. It, and again, I'm heavily paraphrasing here, but he said it worked because I'm, I said it did. Yeah. And I think that goes for every cartoonist out there. Yeah, I really do. You know? Yeah, it works because you said it to you. This is all unreality. You know, right. we're not we're not doing anything that's I mean, it's all make believe. So uh, relax. <laughs> well, everybody, I think, this, you know, in our culture nowadays, I think a lot of a lot of people and this is a gr another gross generalization. But I think there's this constant effort to try to filter classic stuff through through a different lens so sometimes you'll see like uh, realistic sculptures of homer simpson how he would look if he was genuinely human that type of thing yeah and there's so yeah. much there's so much uh, soaking of irony and everything that i i sometimes wonder why as a culture we can't just take things at face value and enjoy them yeah i agree you with know? you I think sometimes we do we do tend to over analyze and we as a culture yeah yeah, and and also, you know, these, you know, you point to a different thing. This kind of, it's as though Homer Simpson needs to be real. That the comic strip or the and animated version of it is not enough. Yeah, I mean, the the effort to to make things. I don't know. It's just it's hard to pinpoint one thing. It's just we live in a fairly, uh, we're in a fairly ironic culture where irony in and of itself is the is the currency. You know, what I mean, it's yeah. like everything has to be kind of like. Uh, subversive and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and also self-aware. There's a subtext to everything, and and everything is self-reverential, you know. Or and that kind of, you know, I got to tell you, that kind of comes full circle back over to Mad as well. I mean, Mad was doing that irony stuff 60 years ago. They know? certainly were, yeah. And and in an environment in which it was rare. Oh, know, that's and, my. That's probably my the better point here. That's the better point. Yes, in that era. Mad was very subversive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there was a, in the fifties, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I teach some history, uh, you know, comics history and stuff like that. And, and we were talking about the fifties one day and the picture the kids have today of the fifties is the, you know, uh, use the word trope again is the basic trope. You know, it's that basic cliche, uh, about the fifties as being a repressive era, which in many ways it was right. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a very simplistic view of it. And, and the fifties in reality had this undercurrent of change of, uh, pushback of, um, variation. And you look at the music at the time, you look at the developments in jazz music at the time, you look at poetry and the beats and, and literature. You could say almost anything post-war because I think, you know, up until the post-war era, 
it, it was, I don't want to say repressive. I think that's a, the wrong word, but I think it was a society that was waiting to, to culturally blow up. And so in the fifties, you know, obviously it's very easy thing to say that the fifties begat the sixties and all that type of thing. But I mean, you did have some very subversive elements in the fifties. I mean, you had Stan Freeberg and guys like yeah. that and Matt yeah. and they were doing stuff that I think were, I mean, think of, you know, EC comics with Matt and everything. Oh yeah. It was Absolutely. subversive. And we all know that story. So there was all the, the culture was like, you know, there were all these if the culture was sewn up or like, a you know, a pocket sewn on a pair of pants, yeah. there were all these, you know, that's a belabor, this stupid illusion. But all these things were pushing at the seams and oh, they were all there and yeah. the and and aching to get out. And part of that had to do with culture that was maturing. Right. And, yeah. and gone through the uh, the. The winning of World War II had an impact in so many ways, positive and negative, really, on the culture. But in one way, it enabled an economic expansion that floated all boats you know, a way we haven't seen and, and continue not to see uh, and uh, since since the 80s, uh, wherein wealth has been concentrated in the hands of this small group of people. In those days, the, the expansion of the country was felt by everybody. That expansion fueled the possibility, creative possibility and uh, political possibility. And so, you know, this is, again, this is just a, a, this simple idiot just expounding. There's much more to it than that, obviously. But, well, you there, know, there is an Hey, this is a new commercial. It's not the same old commercial. It's not the one you've heard the last two times. It's a new one, but it's for the same thing. The same thing is go to jeffgrogan.com, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Check out my work. That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to buy anything. I don't even think there's anything there to buy. Well, maybe there is, but uh, I can't remember. But anyway, go there and look at my work. That's what I want you to do. Look at my work. Check it out. Look at my comics. Go to spikingthelens.com. That's my new comic strip. It's got lots of neat stuff on it. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I hope that you'll have a lot of fun looking at it. And I don't want to take up your time, but make sure you go to jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com or spikingthelens.com. But I'd prefer jeffgrogan.com because it's got everything, plus a link to spikingthelens.com. So you might want to just go there and take care of it. And so do that. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And let's get back to the interview. I think, I think the ultimate, these guys came out of World War II blowing up with ideas. I mean, that's yeah. Schultz. He, he yeah. came the military and wanted to kind of be a cartoonist. And he, he did some minor things, you know. Yeah. But I think that um, the imagination is an interesting thing to study because w- when you look at Schultz, again, a very, very non-assuming guy. I mean, yep. everything I've ever read about him was very nebbishy, very quiet yeah. guy and had an extraordinary mind. And well, I, I tear up when I read some of his stuff. I'm not kidding. I don't want to sound really schmaltzy here and stuff, but some of his best work almost makes me want to cry. It's oh, so good. It's so good. You know, that stuff from the classic period, um, you know, uh, I think there are benefits to reading the entirety of Schultz and I've read the entirety of the strip and, yep. and there are periods that I love more, but I always go back to my favorite periods, which are, are the fifties and the sixties. And the, some of those strips are so beautifully constructed. They're, yeah. they, they are perfect comic strips and, and the, they're the, in a lot of ways for me, they're the epitome of the 
when this when this form is working at its height, they are the epitome of the best this strip can do, this this yes. medium can do, which yes. is function visually and verbally, which encapsulate an entire sensibility, an entire uh, concept in four little panels and reverberate in one's mind long after the fact. Oh, and, an economy of form. An economy, beautiful. It's yeah. a really an amazing thing. I, I, had, I had all these books when I was a kid of Schultz, and I remember, and this has nothing to do with his strip, it has more to do with his hockey arena and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And I remember I was always reading, you know, that Sparky was, uh, you know, golfing with Bob Hope or whoever it might be. And I just thought he looked cool. He was always wearing his cardigan type of yeah. sweater and, you know, <laughs> golfing and the whole Johnny Carson era and stuff. Carson was another huge influence for me. Uh -huh. and, uh, that whole, yeah, that whole era of the post-war greatest generation crowd has always been something for me. It really has. And I, I remember I used to be so in awe of Schultz because he was so easygoing, very affable. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah not not like a snotty guy or anything like that. Just a good guy, you know. Yeah, and I don't want to cut in on Ray Billings. My interview with Ray Billingsley, but he talks about that and yeah. how approachable and and nice a person he was, and what a person he was. And a real I wish I could have met him, you know. Yeah, me too. I I really do. I, I mean, but I think I would have cried, you know. I don't know. But, oh, okay. you know. well, you know, the, I, I, and I hate to digress, but I have to mention Johnny Carson. We talk about these. Uh huh influences right yeah, yeah and i remember as a kid again on these little flights we would take um when i bought national lampoon and all that but even younger i was on a trip to my grandmother's i was i was born in tulsa and we would fly down there for a few years and you know visit stuff and i remember tulsa you know i, I live in the cleveland area but tulsa was an hour behind or whatever central I, I gotta ask you one thing before you go yeah. into to do, yeah. do you know who dwight twilly is yeah, he's good. That guy's good. Now, whatever happened to him? New Wave? Well, well, I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Dwight okay. Twilley was a pop musician in the 70s Tulsa. and 80s. He still works as a musician in Tulsa. Was he really? Yeah, and he puts out records every now and again. And he did one a couple of years ago. Um, I can't remember. that. He's got a, a song called um, uh, Tulsa Town on it. He was and, kind of like a Nick Lowe country guy. Yes, yeah, he was. Right great, great. Yeah. I'm on fire. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah great song. But anyway. Well, well, the, what ended up happening is for the I, I must have been maybe about 10 or 11, but I was allowed to stay up and watch late night TV. And I'd never really done too much of that except for like uh, late night horror movies or whatever. And uh, like on Friday nights. But anyway, so I was allowed to watch suddenly Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was absolutely enthralled with this guy. And I still am. I think Johnny Carson is the epitome, was the epitome of uh, 60s cool, 70s. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Loved him to death. So here's what I did. This is pathetic because I should have been out playing baseball. But I spent virtually every night of these vacations. And when I came back home, I brought out my little cassette recorder. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> and I would record the monologues in real time off the TV. I thought it was just so funny. And he was usually in reruns at that time of his career you know, in the summer. And so, you, so you'd have like Joey Bishop and these guys uh, subbing. But anyway, so I would record the monologue. And then the next morning in my notebook, I would transcribe the monologue into a notebook. Uh-huh. Bizarre. Uh, oh and I will tell you, I still have this notebook. And I laugh every time I look at it because the jokes really aren't funny. There's a lot of Karnak, you know, the magnificent yeah, stuff. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was interesting, I think, it was so critical to my career, I believe, because I was taking a joke, hearing it third hand and then transposing it or transcribing it into a book and noting how the words looked. I don't know if this makes sense, but noting how the words looked with timing mm -hmm. to put in and all that. 
And it was a real learning experience. And I didn't really have an appreciation for that until well into my career. Mm -hmm. That that time period where I really fell in love with Carson was pretty critical for me. Well, that's really interesting uh, because what you're talking about there is timing. And timing is in in comics is as crucial as timing is in in comedy. Right. Oh, my God. Well, the, the, the so-called penultimate third panel, as they like to call it, the, the, I call it the rest panel, but I right. try to avoid it because it, it can be very cliche, but oftentimes it's critical. It yeah. really is. And Peanuts did it very well. Doonesbury did it all the time. A lot of strips do it, but uh, I do it because I enjoy the the very specific timing that it provides to get yeah. it to be understood. I don't know yep. if that Helps. No, I, I totally. This is one of those things again where we we share this experience. Yeah, I've sat there and 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 I'm sure you have too. Three panels or four panels. Three panels or four right. panels. Do I want that beat or do I not want that beat? And you you go through it, and a lot of times you know it is funnier with the beat, and that little pause and the roll of the eyes or whatever it is, or that moment where people just look at each other, you know, before the punchline, and. That that is a real crucial thing and learning how to time stuff and seeing Carson's monologues in print and, and with right. leaks in the in his dialogue. Now, Carson was a master at uh, like, the, as you were saying, the jokes, the jokes were intentionally bad, you know, but, a lot of, they were just bad, but he was funny. Yeah, and he was funny because his timing was funny. Right. His timing was excellent. His pauses were excellent. I mean, the way he told the story was you caught caught up in the rhythm of it and it 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 elicited laughter just because of the way he he paused and the way he looked at the audience. Right. You use the word rhythm. And again, it's another when when we're writing and you're trying to write, let's say, conversationally and stuff, when we talk. Just you and I talking or whenever we're talking to anybody, there's a rhythm to it. We don't notice it in real time, but I mean, there is a rhythm to conversing and and to relating stories and stuff like that. And I think it's real critical. You have to part of it is you have to listen. Yeah. You know, and uh, so Carson was was a major big deal for me in that regard. And I and I look back on this book and I just laugh because I must have been you know, training myself or something you, like you, that. Well, and you were, right? You yeah. were, you know, I just, I'm thinking about Ed McMahon laughing at his oh joke. Oh my God. You he know, funny, he, really in hindsight, but his whole shtick was great, man. Yeah, it was, it was a great shtick and Karnak the Magnificent. Oh my yeah. God. You know, yeah. uh, it was, it was really silly. And, and, you know, comedy then was very different, but you know, you look at those, those guys, the great comedians of those period, that period, Bob Hope and whatnot. And especially when we were growing up, being sort of sons of the counterculture and uh, fans of Monty Python and whatnot, and Saturday Night Live, we yeah. we saw Bob Hope and people like that as the old guard and, and oh, sort of were, sure. might have been dismissive of them. But when you you go go back and look at the way they told jokes, the timing of their jokes, the rhythm, Bob Hope was a master, just an absolute master of the parts. Oh, right. And a real master of delivering a joke. You know, a joke can fall flat if you don't know. Oh, for sure. Well, have you? I mean, I, I just saw an old clip of Rodney Dangerfield. My another God, he's a robot, man. Mm-hmm. You know? And yet, now here's another. Now my all-time favorite comedian, again, yeah. to digress, is George Carlin. Oh, what a brilliant mind. Oh, my God. And you get into the 90s, George Carlin, and he's not just funny. He's about as dark a humor as you're going to get. Yeah, he's very, very dark, and he's also, um, you know, political, and he's, yeah. he's very. He asks you to think, you know. He's oh, one of, God, he's one of my heroes, man. 
Yeah, me too. I think, I think him and people like Lenny Bruce and, and uh, all of those guys who are pushing against the envelope. And, and these days it goes on. There are great comedians out there. I don't, uh, that's not my favorite thing to do is to watch comedy on Netflix, but I'm a Mark Marin fan. And oh, I he's listen, like him, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and um, it's NPR, isn't it, or something? Uh, he's got a, I don't know, it, he's got a podcast called WTF. And, and, no, um, no. and it's a great podcast and I enjoy it. I've seen him on Netflix do a special or two, and I just think he's great. You know, he's very funny. His timing is great also. He's, oh, yeah. but, you know, there are a lot of them. Who are, it's it's this thing that we as cartoonists, it's not spoken about a lot, but like Schultz was a master of it, this this idea of timing. Oh, yeah. How to the beats of a comic strip, the beats of, of a panel, you know, whether it's a Sunday page or whether it is, you know, the daily thing there. And, and what's amazing is how those still can hold up in terms of timing when you're reading them in a collection, that the individual strips timing folds into the larger page where there are eight or ten strips or whatever it is on a page. And yet the timing works. Well, so, you know, I, I don't know where I heard this at, but I remember somebody was saying that a um God, I wish I could remember who said this, but um, one syndicate had for a long time felt that if you can't do it in three panels, you know, it's not worth it or whatever. I forget. Mm -hmm. But I, I, in a way, I agree. But then in a way, I, I mean, I started Neighbors as a three panel strip, essentially, mm -hmm. sometimes four panel. And I converted very early into it to four panels because for whatever reason, and this is just me, but for whatever reason, four panels feels comfortable to do what I want to do. Yeah, it suits them very well. Sometimes it's a little bit of a, you know, sometimes a little bit of a grind, but I force myself to never waste. God, this is a tall order here. I force myself to not waste a panel. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so thus sometimes maybe these rest panels show up a little more often, but I'd like the four panel sequence. I'm not, I, I don't know if it's is widely popular. I think, I think three panels are more common, well, don't you think? The, yeah, I do. The proportion of newspaper strips, anyway, uh, has has changed over the years. Yes. And you, you noticed in the history of Peanuts, he goes, I don't know whether it's what, the late 80s or mid 80s, yeah. um, where Schultz that switches over four to three panels. That had to kill him. I, yeah, I well, actually, he apparently, from what I did read, and this is, you know, I, I, I don't know, uh, I don't have quotes or anything, uh, but apparently he he from what i've heard he enjoyed the challenge of switching oh. four panels to three then doing a two panel strip and then doing yeah. one panel strips where he'd been locked into four panels for so many years well he was a master of the four panel strip and oh. a master of of that timing i often think for me his strongest his comedy is best suited by four panels the three panel strips i st they still work they still work, and sometimes they work really beautifully. But I think, like when I think of the the Schultz strips that are the, you know, the epitome and the the you know of the comic strip form, right. I think of four panels, uh, because it's a very different. It is very different. I mean, it, well, you know, structurally, it forces. And again, I'm, I God, I I hate getting wonky, but four panels, the panel oftentimes that's the toughest to get to the gag is the second panel because there's something expository about it. You have to, you know, you have to set it up in panel one and then you don't want to just repeat panel one. You have to kind of let the conversation flow. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean? yeah. And it's tough to do that in three panel. Although I, I, sometimes I will be very honest with you. I wish I would, I did three panels sometimes, 
Sure. But, and I think it's way more common. But for me personally, four panel feels as comfortable as an old pair of loafers. It really, <laughs> it really well, does. It suits, it suits the strip and it feels that way. Yeah. And it's interesting. You were talking about Schultz when he had moved to the, you know, different panel structures and stuff, but there was a more critical juncture, at least in my estimation that I thought was amazing was, you know, peanuts for years was an extremely horizontal panel. That's right. Yeah. And in the mid seventies, I think, I don't know when exactly it was mid seventies maybe, but somehow or other, I think to fit newspaper reductions that were going on at the time or size reduction, he went to square panels. Yes. And yeah. it, I don't know when it, I can't really remember when it was, but to anybody who lived and died with the strip like me, mm-hmm. it was very jarring. You could see it immediately that it looked different. Oh, absolutely. I'm absolutely. sure it drove them nuts to have to do that because it was a constriction. It was. <laughs> I yeah. agree. And, and I, I've looked at, um, and I, I, in my conversation with Lex Fajardo, we talked about this a little bit. Yeah. When you look at those books that they produced in the last couple of years, celebrating Snoopy, celebrating peanuts, you can see there. And again, I think it was in the eighties, uh, where Schultz's panels, which had been this kind of horizontal format, all uniform yeah. in size become more square, like actually, you know, even a little rectangular with a higher, you know, v- the verticals a little yeah. larger than square, the horizontal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you sense there's not only a change, there's a change in the space and the, and the, and the environment, the con, oh, what is it exactly? It's oh, the, it the strip. He, you know? he made a concession doing that. I think and, so. Yeah. And I don't really know the story. I've never really read too much on his reaction to having to do that, but he could not have been really happy about it. Well, I can't imagine he, he would have been either because I think again, that horizontal format uh, of the panel really suited him, his sense of space really, really well. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he was able to not only draw elements that needed to be in the panel, but there were full figure drawings that became uh, the three quarter figure or torso, head and torso shots. He relied on that more. He eliminated more from the drawing. Um, The sense of the world surrounding the characters, which in Peanuts is implied more than it's really, as as it's true in Next Door Neighbors too, by the way, Um, it's implied more than it is really illustrated. Although you will do a big illustration of the, you know, the courthouse or whatever it is. Sometimes, you know what that's usually for really, it's more of a practicality than anything, because I I do a very simplistic looking strip and I I like to at least occasionally break up, you know, the visual rhythm a little bit. And sometimes I like to segue in like, oh God, I just did this last week, I think, where the Monday strip came in from outside the courtroom or whatever. So there's yeah. a little bit of a TV type thing. Cause you know, yeah. when T on TV show, I, somebody mentioned to me one time, they felt that uh, neighbors was very, it was Tom Falco. I think he was saying he, he likened it to TV shows of the seventies, which I took as a very high compliment actually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, you know, grew up on that stuff and I like how I like to do this in a strip where the strip opens up at the outside of say Deke's bar. And then it goes inside. It's not, you know, it's nothing new about it. It's just something I like to use as sort of a device. It feels comfortable. The establishing shot. Yeah. yeah. I teach a a class on visual narrative and how to tell stories. It's a storyboarding kind of thing. And as well as, you know, comics. And, And the idea is, okay, there are a lot of ways to open a story and a lot of ways to get somebody into a story. But if you're first learning how to tell a story visually, you know, one of the things that, that, and, and I use it too. One of the things that, will bring your care, your, your viewer 
into your world is the establishing shot with a voiceover or something like that. Right. We do that as cartoonists. We do that all the time when we want to bring, when we're changing a scene, we're moving from one place to another. And it makes a lot of sense to do that. And it also, it does, when it is a strip that is in terms of its graphics, like for example, it, it, it implies more than it shows. Well, when you have a scene like that, it opens it up and it brings the viewer into this this concept of a larger world. And so now they can imagine what the rest of the world looks like. Because Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you who I really, one of, one of my all-time favorite cartoonists as well, um, you know, Schultz is like my idol and so is Trudeau. But I mean, I was also in the Mort Walker, Dick Brown camp in, uh-huh. in the uh-huh. early 60s. If, if you've ever looked at some of Dick Brown's High and Lois scenes, yeah. Yeah. Like 1962 or whatever. It's extraordinary. Hank Ketchum's another one that does that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> Ketchum and, and I'm a big admirer of Dick Brown's and, and Mort Walker. I mean, we're talking to people who are masters of the form. Draftsman. You know, so, I could, I, in a million years that just, I couldn't do that. I look at, you know, um, Ron Ferdinand, who is currently doing the Sundays uh, at Dennis the Mess, just a wonderful guy. I see him on Facebook all the time. And he's always, you know, posting old Ketchum dailies. Yeah. Catch him stuff was great. Mighty. The guy was just like a draftsman, man. Yeah. His, his pen and ink work was just, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Free flowing. He was, he was an incredible draftsman. Uh, and, and I think that comes across in everything he touched. Unfortunately, he did his, didn't do as much as we would like, you know, he farmed out the stuff. It's kind of interesting. Um, I, I talked, I've talked about this before, but Ketchum's attitude towards, towards Dennis versus, uh, Schultz's towards peanuts. Schultz saw it as an art form and this was his personal expression from himself within himself. You know, yeah. and Ketchum, on the other hand, saw this as a as a property that he controlled and right. created. Uh, but he was like the CEO of it, and you know, uh, as he called himself, the Merchant of Dennis, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's true. That is true. You know, he he that was the title of his uh, biography. Yeah, in um, a way, they're both correct, but I land in the Schultz camp. Yeah, well, I, I yeah. do too. You know, yeah. I do too. It's a personal expression. Uh, on the other hand, if you're overwhelmed with demands and you know, you do want to put out a comic book well, and a daily comic strip, you're not going to be able to do both. You know, and to be honest though, Schultz wasn't above that. He just never let anybody touch that strip. Everything right. else he had no problem. You know, he had right. comic no. books. Yeah, he had comic books. That's true. And yeah. he had he had people who came from uh, Minnesota to to right. you know, the art instruction school to work with him on him. Very capable. Nobody, nobody to his credit. Nobody ever touched that strip. No, nobody touched the strip. And uh, that was his baby and his personal voice. That's what he cared about. But yeah, but when it came to doing, he wasn't going to do the animation himself. He had to get a studio in there to do it. He couldn't do it himself. I mean, my good Lord. But how much are we asking the guy to do? You know? (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. I think, again, you look at somebody like Schultz. I'm not really sure. I'll be really honest here. And I'm making another assumption, but. I don't, I think Schultz is very singular in the regard of nobody ever touched that strip. Yeah, I think so too. I think he is. I, I think every, every strip that blows up, mm. and again, Dennis is a good example of this, they yeah. have to get a staff. Yeah, they have to get a staff. The, the workload, as we all know, it, it is it's an huge. extraordinary my, yeah. my After I got this strip going and really got into it, and it's not even seven days a week, it is astonishing what kind of work it is. Yeah, it it is an amazing amount of work, and that's one of the reasons I kind of had to, you know, back off from sure. um, from Jetpack Junior and and my strip on Go Comics after a while. Was, yeah. I, it was just too hard 
I had a full time job and I was also it was becoming more managerial and yeah. it just became too difficult to put everything into the strip and the job and have a life. And Can you imagine? Here's another prep or proposition. Can you imagine Charles Schultz having to share his stuff on Twitter all the time? Oh, my God. No, that's or a whole nother you know, job. It, it is another job. You know, and that's and I always feel very much like the the guy on the street corner with the tin cup and all that. Yeah, crap. me too. Yeah, I think we all feel that way. Yeah, I feel I feel. If I'll make it. I'll be very clear. I stopped sharing it on my own personal Facebook page simply because I I I in fact I read a comment once when I first started pushing it on Facebook. I I dumped it in every direction. It was like mm-hmm. forty different pages and stuff. And I remember somebody was uh, talking on one of these pages, and I forget. They were talking about something else, but I, I I got the message. They were saying that some some of these strips were like spam, that yeah. it would just be in your newsfeed all day long and stuff. And I, w- I felt very self-conscious about that. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do that to people. If they really want to seek the strip out, they know where to find it. Mm-hmm. And so I share it, generally speaking, on just maybe a couple of pages, not even my own personal page. Mm-hmm. And I try very hard not to like, bug people with it i, I know yeah. it's so bad but i mean i just try not to on the one hand it's too bad because it's a great strip and a lot yeah, of people thank you. see it and and on the other hand i know exactly what you're saying because i i, I, I feel the same it. way yeah. i don't want to be a pain yeah. in the butt you know i don't want i don't want to be an annoyance or a flaw right. buzzing around people and i i'm sensitive to that and i think a lot of us are you know and it's like how much can we share and i think sometimes like I'll share something in the morning on Instagram and, uh, and it, you know, it won't do anything. I'll think, well, maybe I should share it again because most people won't, a lot of people won't see it until the I evening. See, yeah, you know? I've seen that. Yeah. And and the, so, and you know, then I feel bad about that though. <laughs> well, I see it. I see that type of thing actually a little bit more on Twitter because Twitter to me is like this merry-go-round going 80 miles an hour all the yeah. time. Yeah. And I think that it's hard to get, it's really hard, I think, to get any footing on Twitter. And yeah. I, I tend to maybe not be as active on there as I should be. I'm already a couple of days behind on there. I'm very self-conscious about social media. I really am with the strip. I yeah. try very hard not to overdo it. And maybe that's that's my impetus to get the get the book done. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I hope you do get the book done. And and I'm wondering wh- where can everybody find the strip? Is it just on Go Comics? Well, I will tell you, yeah, it's strictly on Go Comics. And I would... This is another thing I've avoided doing is that in reality, if anybody wants to support any property on Go Comics, the best thing you can do is mm-hmm. go there and sign up and follow the strip, comment, strip share it type of thing. Because yeah. those are all metrics that they follow. So, I mean, I, I never really, except for the day that the strip debuted, I never bring that up because, again, I don't want to, you know, have the tin cup out. Right. But, right. You know, so I, I think the the only other thing that I would encourage people to check the strip out uh, in terms of format is Instagram, because I personally enjoy how it looks reformatting it on there. I do too. Yeah. And I I enjoy doing that. And it's just one of these things where anything else, meaning any other social media, I try, I just, you know, Twitter is just basically a sharing type of thing between go comic share to next door neighbor's site on Facebook. And then Mm -hmm. Instagram, I'm pretty tuckered out by that point. Yeah. Cause you know, yeah. It's a lot of work to do that. And then you're doing the strip. And, and so is this what you're doing, working on the strip five days, six days, seven days a week, um, sharing it on social media? Is this the the, the majority of your day in a well, way? 
in it, well, kind of. I mean, I do a little bit of greeting card work still. So okay. I still do a little bit of stuff for recycled paper greetings. And I have a band, so we play around a little bit, you know, uh -huh. do that type of stuff. And uh, that generally keeps me busy. But again, I'm always, like I mentioned earlier, I, I gave thought to maybe spinning Vera off into a strip. I'm thinking, what, am I out of my mind? I know, to do another <laughs> one, man. Yeah. And, so. and it, but, you know, I, I think... If next door neighbors, it, it's gonna it's gonna hit. I think it's a terrific strip. Like I said, oh, it is consistently that. funny, uh, day in and day out. I get a laugh from it all the time. That's awesome and, to hear. Well, you know what? I mean, as a creative, you know how this is. You you really appreciate hearing stuff like that. I mean, well, it, and I'm, you know. I'm, I'm really sincere about it. You know, I know I say this to all the, the guests I've had, but I've had on people that I really admire and I really like a lot. And Pat, I really, really love Next Door Neighbors. I get oh, a real kick so out of it. You know, it's it's really funny. I think Norm's a great character. Maybe it calls to mind. Does it call to mind 70 sitcoms? I never thought of it that way. It's it's just it's it's a, a strip that I think is, it speaks to the time. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's beautifully done. The cartooning is hilarious. Just like Schultz always said, funny drawing is the nature of cartooning and your drawing is really funny, oh, man. Thank you. Really thank fun. you so I much. really I get a kick it. out of it. Yeah. Thank and, you. Thank you, Jeff. Well, I'm, you know, I mean it and I'm looking, I'm, I will look forward to a collection. I, I think that that's going to be. I'm on the hook, man. <laughs> You, you got to get that done. A lot, so I got to do something here. You do. You absolutely do. It's, it's really been great. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, and thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, if you want to help this podcast, you know what to do. Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever the heck it is you're listening to this podcast. Give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating. That's the best thing. Give us a review. A review is really nice because people will read that and they go, oh, hey, this is pretty interesting, and they'll check it out. And then what that means is that people who are like cartoonists who you know may, might otherwise not want to get involved with me may look at it and say, hey, this is a good thing to get involved with, and then we'll have more interesting interviews, and then that'll be very interesting for you. So it, it, it's, it's like karma, you know? It's like it's payback. You'll get payback from going there and helping me out. So get some payback. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give me a review. Do something like that. And and uh, I'll be happy. So if I'm happy, you're happy. So, uh, well, not necessarily. That's not necessarily true. But uh, I'm happy. So, okay. Here we go. Uh, and of course, you know the other thing to do. Do I have to tell you? Go to jeffgrogan.com. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Uh, it's just like the Mickey Mouse Show. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. And, and uh, you know, it's it, the tour commensurate, you know? So there you go. Um, so check out my work there. I really appreciate it. It really does make me happy to see all those clicks and happy faces showing up on my website and looking at my work because otherwise I feel alone, so lonely. You don't want me to be lonely. That would be terrible. I'd be sad, sad, very blue, and then I couldn't have really good conversations with folks who are on the show. So definitely go to jeffgrogan.com. Check it out. You'll see all my work there. Uh, one of these days, maybe I'll even get t-shirts. I don't know, something like that. But, uh, you know, I had a lot of coffee today, and I've done two commercials like this, and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I, So go to jeffgrogan.com, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com, and spikingthelens.com. I don't want to spell that because it's too complicated. So go to spikingthelens.com too, but you can go there from jeffgrogan.com. So do that, okay? Please. Thank you very much. Okay, bye.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as Pat and I quite obviously did. It's really nice to uh, have this opportunity to converse with other cartoonists and uh, fellow travelers. Cartoonists, we, we find, you know, we're locked away in our, our closets, in our studios uh, most of the time, alone, struggling with the next panel, with the lettering guide. Uh, with the character design, whatever, and uh, dying to get out once in a while and have a conversation about comics with other people who love comics. <laughs> because somehow, somehow, uh, not everybody's obsessed with comics in the way we are. So it's great to be able to talk about comics history and uh, uh, the making of comics and all of the details and the pen nibs and the ink and the procreate and everything else that goes into it so i really enjoyed it and uh hope hope you did too check out pat's work at gocomics.com it's next door neighbors by pat sandy uh do pat a favor subscribe to it that's how uh he gets his remuneration from uh andrews mcmeal and universal you click it's through uh, gocomics.com and it's through subscriptions and so be sure to to do that for comics that you like and want to support uh, and you don't have a lot of money and, and you can't fork out a regular Patreon contribution hey go over to Go Comics and subscribe because that is one way in which you're going to help those cartoonists out uh, and Pat's work is certainly worthy so again you won't be disappointed next door neighbors it's a lot of fun and I love it Wow, summer is winding down. Uh, as most of you know, or as some of you know, maybe nobody knows. I don't know. Uh, I'm a university professor. I go back to work. I've had the summer free, actually. It's been a busy summer, but it's been a great one. The weather's been great. I've got a lot of work done. Uh, I've done. I've interviewed and talked to a bunch of folks. It's been really, really nice doing the podcast. And uh, But next week, I go back to teaching. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing all those new smiling faces in my uh, comics class uh, and whatnot. But... Um, uh, that means scheduling is going to be a little more difficult. It, it, it does interfere. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a job that sometimes interferes with putting together the podcast, but I will do my best to stay on track. And I hope you'll come back to listen. But uh, I'm putting this up early this week um, because it's unlikely I'll be able to get anything together for next week. So that's why this is early. That's, and, and it all has to do with going back to work and whatnot and being real busy because the first week is always craziness. That's, that's what's happening there. Boy, oh boy, Labor Day is only a couple of weeks away. And with Labor Day, of course, comes the Great Pumpkin and cider and donuts and uh wow i love this time of year it it yeah it's a different thing it's not as free as as uh, uh the summer is and you know the lazy days of summer all of that it's great and but fall's not quite like that but all i do love at the end of the summer after all the heat and everything that that turn of the season i know not everybody who's listening has a change of seasons but that's one of the reasons i love upstate new york um is, is the fall and uh, that brisk air that moves in from Canada and the color of the leaves and it's wonderful so uh, I'm looking forward to that and I'm looking forward to seeing the great pumpkin rise out of the pumpkin patch <laughs> all right so I'm, I'm looking forward to buying a pumpkin you know we're gonna do that this year though we're gonna we're gonna decorate so it's gonna be it's gonna be nice I like that um but what I really look forward to is is uh, we have this thing in town called the Cider Mill, and I look forward to going there because they make the best donuts in the universe. I swear to God. So, uh, and they only do it in the fall, right? So it's like it's special. It's very special. So I'm 
I'm up for that. And I hope that you are well and that you are looking forward to the future and to the fall. And and uh, I hope you'll come back. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.